If I had one verse that capsulizes the entire Bible, it would be John chapter 3 and verse 16. Would you take your phone or your Bible or whatever you have and turn to John chapter number 3? And I'm not going to preach long. I'll tell you what Elizabeth Taylor told her eighth husband, I won't keep you long. I'll tell you what Britney Spears told her barber, let's cut it short. But I want you to listen to me real carefully for the next few moments. John chapter 3 and verse 16. Some of you know it by memory. Let's say it out loud together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now all of us believe in God, it seems like intuitively, innately. Most people believe there's a God. There's a lot of different ideas about who God is and, and what it takes to get to know God or whether or not it's possible to get to know God. I spend a lot of time in Africa. And in Africa, they believe that there is a creator God. They call him Yahweh. But they don't believe that you can come to know this God in a personal kind of way. And that's called deism. Many of the founding fathers of our country were deists. They believed there was a God. They believe in a creator. But they didn't, weren't sure whether or not you could ever really know him. This is what Judaism teaches. Judaism teaches that there is a God, but you can't really know that God personally. The best you can do is try to live by Torah, by the Ten Commandments. And the Muslims feel the same way. You'll never hear a Muslim refer to God as Father. That would be blasphemy for them because they believe that Allah is far and distant. And then there are people who have the opposite problem. We call them pantheists. They believe that God is everything and everything is God. As a matter of fact, what pantheism says, and this is what Buddhism really is and Hinduism, what they say is if you want to get to know God, then hug a tree or smell a flower or roll in the gra grass or get to know yourself because everything, the flower, the tree, the grass, everything, including yourself, is God and God is everything. And then there are, of course, some people who say there's no God. You have to work really hard to be an atheist. I have a friend of mine. I, I, I know a lot of atheists because I teach apologetics in the university. And so I'm always encountering atheists. And, and one atheist friend of mine, he said, no, he got mad at me not long ago. He said, Scott, man, you Christians, you have all the holidays. You have Christmas and you have Thanksgiving where you give thanks and you have Easter. And us atheists don't have any holidays at all. I said, oh, yes, you do. April 1st. Because the Bible says that only a fool would say in their heart that there is no God. Because when you look at creation and the intricacy and detail and design, then you must come to the conclusion. I mean, if there's a car, there has to be an engineer. If there's a watch, there has to be a watchmaker. If, there, if there's a building, there has to be an architect. And if there is a universe with precision and intricacy and detail and design, then there must be a creator, and that creator is by definition God. You see, you're not the product, contra materialistic, naturalistic, Darwinistic kind of evolution that says we're all here by accident, the accidental of a collision of atoms with protons and neutrons rubbing into each other, and then there was a cold swoosh, and then a hot big bang. And, you know, what would you think of me if you said to me, Scott, I like your watch, man. That's a nice watch. How did you get that watch? What would you think of me if I said, well, billions and billions of years ago, out in the cosmos... There was this cellular soup, 
And infinitesimal bits of protons and neutrons began rubbing into each other until it created a greater density. And one day the earth contracted with a big swoosh and then contracted with a hot big bang. And I looked up in the sky and tumbling down through the heavens was my watch. Man, if you believe that, dude, your cheese has done slid off your cracker. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you got rooms for rent, man. Listen, if there's a watch, there must be a watchmaker. You're not the product of some green piece of slime that crawled out of the ocean, grew an arm, a leg, a tail, and, you know, said, you know, what's up? You know what I mean? That's not how you got here. There's a God, man. Some people believe something like this. Once I was a tadpole swimming in a brook, and then I was a bullfrog with a brand new look, and then I was a monkey swinging through the trees, and now I'm a doctor with a PhD. I mean, come on, man. You know better than that. There's a God. Creation tells us there's a God. Your own conscience lets you know there's a God. Your conscience is that part of you that lets you know what's right and what's wrong, and it's intuitively right to believe, listen to me, that there's something beyond yourself, that the, what you see and touch and smell and hear is not all there is. There's an eternal part of us. The Bible says it like this. It says God has placed eternity in our hearts. You came from God. Your primary purpose is to know God, and one day you're going to go back to God. And no matter how much money you make or how much fame you get or how many girls you date or how popular you are, some of you guys think, man, I know there's something wrong on the inside of me, and I know there's something missing, but man, if I could just date this girl, I know I'd be happy. Or if I could just date this girl, or if, if I could just date anybody, man, I mean, I'd be happy. And yet there's something on the inside of all of us. It doesn't matter how much money we make. Some of the wealthiest people I've ever met in my life are some of the most miserable people I've ever met in my life because money can buy a lot of things, but it can't buy happiness, and it can't buy peace of mind, and it can't buy a home in heaven. And so our own conscience tells us that there must be a God. Our own innate and our innate sense of right and wrong lets us know that there's a creator. It's, it's almost as if God has stamped, made by God, on our gut, and we know somehow that there must be a God. And then when you look at the, the, the Bible, the Bible, you know, the Bible, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible, but I would encourage every university student to read the Bible. Because there's something powerful about the Bible. You know, the Bible is the number one bestseller of all time. It's been translated into over 600 different languages. It was the first book ever printed in the 15th century on the Gutenberg Press. The first book ever taken into outer space for the entire world to hear. And throughout the centuries, people have been willing to give their life just to have a page of the book that we call the Bible. There's something powerful about the Bible. And it's also been the most hated book of all time. Diocletian was a Roman emperor in the 4th century. Diocletian hated Christians and he hated Christianity. He felt like Christianity was a threat to the synergy of the Roman Empire. And it was, in fact, and so Diocletian got all the Christians. He began to persecute them. He gathered up their sacred scriptures and he put them in huge piles and lit torches and set their sacred scriptures on fire. But one day Diocletian died and a man named Constantine took his place. And Constantine continued to persecute Christians until he said in his, in his diary he was leading his armies into battle. And Constantine said that he looked in the sky and he had a vision. He saw in the sky a, a cross, 
And underneath the cross, these words, in this sign, conquer. And Constantine became a Christian. He had his entire Roman army baptized. And the Roman Catholic Church was born. And Constantine ordered that handwritten copies of the Bible be circulated around the Roman Empire. Diocletian is dead, but the Bible lives on. There was a French skeptic named Voltaire in the aftermath of what we call the Enlightenment who said that Christianity was the greatest hoax ever perpetrated upon the human race. He said the Bible is nothing more than a book of legend and myth and fairy tale and saga. And he said within a hundred years of my death there won't be one Bible or one Christian left on planet earth. And so Voltaire died one day And guess who bought his house? A publishing company, a printing company. And guess what they began to print in the house and what they still print in the house of the man who said within a hundred years of my death there'll be no more Bibles and no more Christians. You guessed it, man. Bibles and Voltaire is dead, but the Bible lives on. There was a man named Mao Zedong who took over communist China during the 1960s cultural revolution. And the first thing Mao did was take all the Bibles from the Chinese Christians and replace them with this little red book of communism. But now Chairman Mao is dead, and the Chinese people are marching in the streets, and they want, they want freedom. They want freedom of press, and they want freedom of uh, academic freedom, and they want freedom of religion. And now there are millions and millions of Bibles that are going into red China. Listen, Mao is dead, but the Bible lives on. There's something powerful and something special about this book that we call the Bible. You know, I've never, I've never met anybody who said I was an atheist. I was, I was a drug addict. I, was a, I, was a, I, I beat my wife and I was on drugs and alcohol and then I read Shakespeare's Hamlet and it changed my whole life. I've never met anybody who said that. I've never met anybody that said my life was a mess, but then I picked up Darwin's Origin of the Species and the wonder, the beauty of evolution has made a new person out of me. No, but I could line up hundreds and millions of people throughout the history of the church who would say to you, I read the Bible and I encountered God while reading the Bible and Jesus Christ has made a new person out of me. And then Jesus shows there must be a God. Did you know Jesus, Jesus only lived to be 33 years old? And he never traveled very far. He walked everywhere he went, that 150 by 50 mile wide strip of land called Israel. He never extended beyond the boundaries of Israel except as a child. He went into Egypt, but his ministry was circumscribed to a very small geographical part of land. He never wrote a book. But there's not a book, a library in the world that can contain all the books that have been written about him. And his followers have circled the globe innumerable times. He never marshaled an army. He never conquered by an army. And yet there have been millions of people who would gladly stand up and say, Jesus is my commander in chief. Now, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I was in Ghana, West Africa, and I, I work among the Muslims there. And they all believe in Jesus. They love Esau. They say Esau was a great prophet, a mighty man of God. But did you know Jesus didn't claim to be just a prophet? Jesus was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. I talked to a Buddhist not long ago, and I said, what do you think about Jesus? And she said he was a great avatar, a great spiritual guru like Buddha himself, maybe greater than Buddha. But Jesus never claimed just to be a teacher, although he was the greatest teacher the world has ever known. Listen, my friend, Jesus did not claim to be just a teacher or a, or a prophet or a miracle worker or an example. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. 
Jesus used the tetragrammaton, the, the, the word of the, the, the name for God, I am, ego and me in the Greek New Testament. He said, I am. That's the same word that God used when he described himself to Moses. I am. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the, the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. Jesus said, I am God. When you look into these eyes, Jesus said, you're looking into the eyes of omnipotence. When you hear this voice speak, you're hearing the omnipotent voice that spoke and the whole world came into being. Jesus claimed to be God. Now, was he a, was he a liar? Was Jesus? Well, he could have been, maybe. And yet he's made men of integrity out of liars throughout the centuries. I don't think he was a liar. Was he a lunatic, a crazy man assigned to a mental institution in our day? I went to a mental institution not long ago to see a friend of mine who was having mental problems and when I walked in, I met his roommate. I, I shook out, I put out my hand to shake his hand. I said, hey, I'm Scott. And he said, hello, I'm Napoleon Bonaparte. Because he was mentally deranged. And I guess Jesus could have been mentally deranged. And yet he is inspired. How could a madman inspire the world's greatest architecture and culture everywhere he went? His followers have built hospitals and universities and benevolence organizations. And his message has changed and shaped not only Western civilization, but the entire world has never been the same. History is his story. I don't think he's a liar. I don't think he's a lunatic. I believe that Jesus Christ is who he said to who he claimed to be. Listen to me. That God loved us so much. Listen, and I'm finished, man. That God loved you as a college student, a university student, a high school student, a mom and dad, a businessman who's looking. You're looking for something. You're looking for the answer to life. And you're wondering, what is life about? And you can't seem to find any purpose for your life or any direction for your life. There's an emptiness on the inside of you. I'm here to tell you that there is a God, that he is the creator of everything, including you, and that he created you with a purpose in mind. And that ultimate purpose is to know him. And in so that you could know him, he sent his son, his son, Jesus, God in the flesh, stepped out of the starry steps of eternity in to time and wrapped his deity up in flesh and the creating one became the cradled one man God became a man and he walked the dusty trails of Palestine you know he never did anything wrong you see the Bible says that we've all done stuff wrong the Bible says that we're all sinners we've all broken God's law for example God has ten commandments and according to the Bible and our own experience we've all broken every one of them for example the Bible says that we should not steal anything how many have ever broken that commandment let me see your hand you've stolen something come on come on come on be on we got a bunch of thieves in here in church amen Here's another one. Thou shalt not lie. How many have ever broken? You're lying right now, buddy. Get your hand up up there in that balcony. Amen. I mean, all of us, we've all lied. You say, I've never murdered anybody, but you remember what Jesus said? He said, if you've ever had hatred in your heart towards someone, unforgiveness and bitterness because they have abused you or molested you or ripped you off or took your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your position on the football team or stole something from you or ran off with your wife and you thought in your heart, man, if I could get my hands on them, I'd kill them. Jesus said, you've committed murder in your heart. 
He said, if you've ever lusted after someone of the same or the opposite sex, that you've committed adultery, sexual immorality in your heart, and all of us have broken the very first commandment of all, which is that we should have no other gods except the one and the true and the living God who created us all. And the truth is we all have a lot of idols in our heart. Matter of fact, some of you, most of us, worship ourselves. Some of you got up this morning and looked in the mirror and sang your favorite song, How Great Thou Art. Amen. I mean, you just love you. You love yourself. And so the Bible says, listen to me, that we're all sinners and that we're all, we've all broken God's law. And because of that, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the word death means separation, not only physical death. But eternal death, separation from God in a place so horrible, Jesus called it hell. And he spoke three times as much about hell. See, he, Jesus said that there is a place. He compared it to the, gar- the garbage dump outside of the city of Jerusalem called Gehenna where they would take their trash and they would throw unclaimed bodies and all their refuse and their rubbish. They would throw it there. And because they were constantly filling it with garbage, the fire never went out and the smoke was always ascending and there were worms that never seemed to die. And Jesus said, that's what it's going to be like for every person. They're going to perish unless they come to me and trust me. You see, there's one way to God. And it's not your way. It's not the Muslim way or the Buddhist way. It's not even the Baptist way. Let me tell you something, buddy. Some of you think you're going to go to heaven because you're a Baptist. I could spit in hell right now and hit a Baptist right on the head. I could throw a pitchfork in hell and hit a Methodist or a Catholic or a Presbyterian or an Episcopal. Listen, it's not the church of Christ that saves you. It's the Christ of the church that saves you. You've got to come to Jesus because he's the only way. And God loved you so much that he sent his son to come to this earth. And he never did anything wrong. He never hurt anybody. Everywhere he went, he touched lame people and their legs were strengthened and they got up and danced in the presence of God. He touched the blind eyes of men and for the first time they looked into the faces of their children and they gave God glory. He raised people from the dead. Buddha never raised anybody from the dead. Buddha on his deathbed said, I'm still searching for truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. The Quran is very explicit that Muhammad did no miracle. And yet Jesus took five loaves and two fishes and turned it into an all-you-could-eat seafood buffet. Amen. I mean, he had all power. He's the most unique person who ever lived. But he didn't just come to teach. He didn't just come to work miracles. Listen to me and I'm done. When he was 33 years old, they took him to a skull-shaped mountain outside the city of Jerusalem. From a distance, it looked like a skull, and so they called it Golgotha or Calvary, the place of the skull. The Bible says they took Jesus and they ripped his clothing off his body. There he is naked. You see, this was designed crucifixion. And the torture that preceded it was designed to completely and totally dehumanize a person. And so they stripped Jesus naked, which is the most shameful thing for a Jewish male. And they tied his hands to a vertical pole. And then a Roman soldier who was skilled in the art of scourging took what was called in that day a cat of nine tails or a scourge. You better hear me this morning up in that balcony. And like an artist painting strokes on a canvas... 
That soldier took that whip, that cat of nine tails, consisting of a heavy club with nine long strands of leather. And at the end of each piece of leather, a piece of rock or metal or bone or glass. And that soldier took that cat of nine tails and he unleashed. And as that, is that, is that, is that those pieces of rock and metal and bone whistle through the air that Jesus spoke into existence because he was not just a man. He was God. He was God come in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as those pieces of rock and metal and glass hit the body of Jesus, they literally stuck. They adhered into his flesh. And like a, like a, like a, a lion taking its paw, its paw and, and, and going through the flesh, raking the flesh of its human prey. That soldier took that cat of nine tails and beat the body of Jesus. And when he whisked away that whip, literally hunks of flesh would fall from the body of Jesus. Five and ten and fifteen and twenty times nine and more. Most men never survived the Roman scourge. They were completely disemboweled in the process. Their guts fell out in front of their own eyes. It's the last thing they saw before they died. And that Roman soldier beat Jesus until he exhausted himself. And when he had finished, he cut the rope that held Jesus' hand and Jesus' body because he was a man. He wasn't just an apparition like the docet has said. He was God come in the flesh. He was a man. Listen, he walked. He grew weary. He grew thirsty. He wept. He bled. He suffered. He died. And then they said, we're going to have some fun with this guy. And they said, he said he's a king. If he's a king, he said he has a kingdom. Then he needs a crown. Go get him a crown. And so some soldiers ran into the Judean hillside that day. And they got the long thorns that still grow in the Judean hillside. And they formed and fashioned with their cruel hands of hate a crown of thorns. And they put it on his sinless brow. And Jesus bore on his sinless brow the curse of all humanity. They took a stick and shoved it in his right hand and took a purple soldier's garment and draped it around his bloody beaten shoulders. And the Bible says they began to bow before him and mock homage saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then the Bible says they began to torture him. They started bullying him. If you've ever been bullied, man, Jesus knows what that feels like. They took their hands and they ripped his beard out by the roots and they took their fists and they pounded away at him until his eyes were swollen and puffy and his lips were bruised and broken and his teeth were loosened and his nose, his face was disfigured and they beat him and kicked him and hit him and spit on him and took the stick and hit him in the head until it drove the thorns deeper and deeper into his own brow and he was blinded by his own blood and then they punched him and they kicked him and they hit him and they spit on him until they wore themselves out and then they took that horizontal beam of the cross 90 to 110 pounds an old rough rugged cross and they put it on his bloody beaten shoulders and you can imagine that the splinters began the thorns began to work their way into the bodies of the body of Jesus his nerve endings were exposed he must have felt like his entire body was on fire as the soldier said march 650 yards up the via dolorosa the pathway of pain and on the way to the top of that hill Jesus, because he had been up for two days and two nights and endured a kangaroo court and a miscarriage of justice and he had been beaten and his body was in shock because he was a man, he fell beneath the load of the cross. And they got a man from Africa, Simon of Cyrene. History will always record that it was a black man that helped Jesus carry the cross to the top of the hill. And when they got Jesus to the top of the hill, they stretched his arms out taut and they took nine-inch nail spikes and they positioned him in his wrist so as not to break a bone. And they brought the heavy mallet up high in the air and brought it down. 
on the head of the spike and they drove those nails through his right hand and his left hand through the muscle and the nerve and the sinew and they crossed his feet and drove a nail through his feet and raised the cross up high in the air and dropped it in a huge hole in the ground and when the bottom of that cross hit the bottom of that hole all his bones came out of joint and there's Jesus there's Jesus some of you just a little too cool for Jesus you're just a little too cool some of you men, you love your money. You're going to die and go to hell over a green piece of paper with a dead man's picture on it because you love money more than you love Jesus. Listen, George Washington, Ben Franklin, and all those other faces on that money, they didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. And Jesus said, pick up the cross and follow me. Give me your life. And there's Jesus hanging on the cross covered with spit and sweat and dirt and blood. And you know what else covered him that day? Listen to me, and I'm through. Every sin you've ever committed. Every sin. See, I didn't grow up in church, man. Listen, if you got a mom and dad who got you up this morning and said, get dressed, it's time to go to church, man, and no matter how what you felt like you got up, you ought to thank God for your mom and dad. I grew up in a bar in a town called Wichita Falls, Texas. My mama was 15 years old when she got pregnant with me. My dad was a teenager. They didn't know God. As far as I know, nobody ever tried to tell my mom and dad about Jesus. And so when I was seven years old, I came home from first, second grade, stood between my mom and dad, dodged flying pots and pans and flying ashtrays and flying ac accusations. My dad was a truck driver. My mom was by that time a bartender. She was with one man after another after another. My dad did the same thing. There was no, they didn't know, Je don't you understand, they didn't know Jesus. And so when I was seven years old, my parents said, we're not going to be married anymore. And all I can tell you is that in that moment, something dark invaded me. There was, a, there was a brokenness and a sadness that came over me. I started getting in trouble when I was a little kid in elementary school. When I was in eighth grade, somebody handed me my first shot of alcohol. When I was a freshman, somebody handed me my first marijuana cigarette. And two years later, I was hopelessly addicted to both drugs and alcohol. I looked good on the outside because I was 220-pound fullback going to play college football. And I'd strut up and down the halls of my high school like I had the world by the tail, but it was just me and four walls in darkness. I'd cry myself to sleep at night because I didn't think anybody cared about me. I didn't think anybody loved me. I felt so ashamed. Some of you feel that way right now. You say, Scott, I've done things I'm so ashamed of, and I understand what that feels like. I didn't think anybody could love me or cared about me. But one day my senior year in high school, in a geometry class, which I slept through every day because my best friend was the biggest dope dealer in our whole county and he had a hot wad, $100 bills at all times, drove a brand new T-Bird he bought with his own money. His dad was in the Mexican Mafia, 17 years old, and he would pull up in the driveway and honk the horn. I'd come out, we'd light up a couple of joints, pop a couple of pills, and by the time I got the first period, man, I was zonked. And my teacher just said, let him alone, let him sleep. It's easier to have class when he's asleep. And so I slept through that geometry class until one day there were three girls in my high school. That's why I love young people. That's why I love you guys. Because every great revival, every great move of God started with young people. There is tremendous power in the lives of young people who are committed to Jesus Christ. And there were three little girls in that geometry class who were going to a little Baptist church out in the middle of the country. I found this out later, and they had prayer. They would meet together and pray for the kids in our school. And I found out later they made a top ten list 
of the worst kids in our high school who they wanted to see saved that year. And guess who made number one? You're looking at him right now. Number one. I found out when they would come together, their youth group, they weren't concerned about going on nice little youth group trips and doing all. They would get on their face and they would ask God, God, send revival to our high school. They prayed for me specifically by name. And one day, one of those little girls full of the Holy Spirit kind of nudged me. She said, Scott, I said, what? What do you want? And I'll never forget, Pastor, the tears. That's the thing I'll never forget in Kelly Crossan's eyes. We're friends to this day. Her eyes were full of tears. And tears were trickling down. When's the last time you cared for anybody except yourself? When's the last time you got a burden for this city, for thousands of college kids that are partying their brains out every semester without God? They don't know God. When's the last time you drove around this city to the areas where the poor live? Their, their, their front yards scattered with beer cans and, and bottles of booze. And their, 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 their children, they don't know Jesus. They don't know. You know, we lived within six blocks of a Southern Baptist church. And as far as I know, nobody from that church ever knocked on our door and invited my teenage parents to come to church or come to Jesus. I've often wondered what a difference it could have made in my parents' life and in my life. And this girl said, Scott, you know what your problem is? And I said, why don't you tell me? And she said, you don't know Jesus. She didn't condemn me. She didn't preach at me. She didn't tell me I was going to hell. She said, Scott, Jesus loves you. And he died for you and he rose from the dead. And another girl said, Scott, we've been praying for you. Don't you know what a difference Jesus would make in your life? And I wish I could have told you. I wish I could tell you that I stood up or bowed down and said, man, I want Jesus. But I did. My heart was so hard that I stood up and took God's name in vain and said, I don't even believe there is a God. Because I was so hurt on the inside. I walked out of that classroom in the middle of the class. And later on that day in the hallway, one of those girls found me, stuck her little finger in my big face and said, Scott Camp, you're the biggest phony in this high school. And then she said these words. Listen, she said, I'm going to pray for you every day until God changes your life. And a month later, I was in a discotheque on Cooper Street in Arlington, Texas. And two Arlington police officers who had been looking for me for a long time finally caught up with me. Because of my life of addiction and drugs and alcohol, it led me to be a criminal, a thug. And they arrested me, booked me on a felony charge. Later, I was transferred to Tarrant County Jail Cell in Fort Worth. And in that jail cell, the whole, I can't explain it to you, but somehow like air coming into my lungs, the Holy Spirit of God walked into that. Jesus walked in. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus for me who walked into that jail cell convicted me of my sin. I repented. I turned from my sin. I put my trust in Christ who died for me and not only died for me for my sin, but three days later after they had buried him and he was dead, three days later, listen, he came alive. Jesus is alive. Amen. Buddha's not alive. Muhammad's not alive. Christian's not alive. But Jesus is not a man who lived and then died. He's a man who died and now he lives. Jesus is alive. And that same Jesus who rose up from that tomb that first Easter morning came walking into my life like air coming into my lungs. Christ came to live in me. I walked in that jail cell one person. I walked out of that jail cell a brand new person because of the power of Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm asking you today. 
I'm asking you today to open up your heart to do what I did 33 years ago in a jail cell in Fort Worth to say, God, I believe that you're real. I know you're real. When I think about creation and my own conscience and the Bible and when I think about Jesus and the lives that you've changed, I know you're real. But listen to me and I'm done. It's not enough just to believe in God. You can believe in God. The devil believes in God. The demons believe in God. It's not enough just to believe in God. Some of you are going to die and you're going to miss heaven and go to hell by 18 inches. 18 inches from right here to right here. Because you believe in God in your head and maybe you've been baptized and you're a member of the church, but that's not enough. I was at First Baptist Church in Dalhart, Texas a year ago on a crusade. Over 150 people came to Christ in four days. You know who got saved on the last night of the crusade? The chairman of the deacon's wife who said, Scott, 30 plus years ago we joined this church and they gave me a card and I checked the box. She said, I got baptized, but I've known for 30 years that I wasn't really saved. I've gone to bed every night knowing that if I died, I would have woken up in hell. And she said, I'm tired of the, my pride has kept me from Jesus. And she said, today I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. And her life began to change. She's never been the same. I'm asking you today not to become a member of the church or to believe in God. Or to, I'm asking you to come to Jesus in your heart. To believe that he is God's son, that he died for you on the cross, and that he rose from the dead. And to believe it so much that you're willing to turn from your sin and trust Christ and begin to follow Christ and live for Christ. And let everybody know that you're not ashamed. And the Bible says if you'll do that, you will not perish. But right now, you'll have eternal life. You'll find out what life is really all about. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed all over this place in the balcony on the main floor. I want every person in this room very quietly and very reverently to bow your head and close your eyes. And I'm going to ask that for the next few moments nobody move around. I'm going to ask you not to touch anybody. Don't talk to anybody. Don't do anything that would distract anybody from coming. My college friend, could I just plead with you? Will you listen to me?